They tried to stop my shine, but I said, hold up. Y'all know how many hoes done tried to hold this hoe up. Tokyo Talk boy. to music. You wanna test me, ho? Well, don't you know, don't you know? I'm Craig Seymour, ho. I've been here before. I got the ancestors' blood, and I stay dripping. So when they try to block me, they be tripping. What's uh-huh. up? How y'all doing? How y'all doing? Took a little time off, but I'm back. Took a little time off, but I'm back. How y'all doing? How y'all doing? Took a little time off, but I'm back. Took a little time off, but I'm back. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Craig's Pop Life, a black gay excursion into pop culture. I'm your host, Craig Seymour. (laughs) Yes, I'm ambitious. You know me. Shout out to the late Diane Carroll. I've been writing about pop music for more than 20 years now. You can read most of my music writing at rnbeing.com. I'm also an author who has written a number of books, starting with the biography of the R&B legend, the R&B god, the R&B everything, taught these other cats how to sing, um, influenced by the most legendary black female singers that have ever lived, Mr. Luther Vandross, the book, The Luther, The Life and Longing of Luther Vandross, um, my memoir about being a grad school stripper hoe, All I Could Bear, My Life in the Strip Clubs of Gay Washington, D.C., and my novel about three generations of black gay men looking for love, Who's Your Daddy? Thank you so much to everybody that is reading it. I know it's your summer vacation reads for some people, and I appreciate it so much. It's a very personal book um, for me. It's one of those books, you know, love it or hate it, whether people like it or not. It's just like that's from the heart in terms of it sums up all of my feelings that I was having about certain relationships at that time in my life, um, kind of my late 30s. And everything I really think, thought, thought then and in many ways still think about love and life. I mean, the one thing you don't realize sometimes about a, a novel, well, one thing I didn't realize in going into writing a novel is how philosophical it is and how base, how it links into um, your basic philosophy of life because you have to decide whether a character, does a character fall in love, does a character not fall in love, do these people, what, what happens to these people? And that's all based upon um, what you feel should happen in the order of the world that you create. So it's all that. It's just um, a very special um, book for me. So I always appreciate um, folks. And, you know, it ain't, it's not about some stripper. You don't get no titillation. There are strippers in it, though. But you don't got the stripulations, strip, stripulation. That's a good word to start. But, but you don't got the strippers in the, you, you know, in, I like a bear, and it's not about somebody you know like Luther. So for you to just take the chance on me as a writer, I just really appreciate it. So shout out to all y'all. Um, and then there's my forthcoming book special, The Life and Art of Janet Jackson. And I can tell you guys that that is coming along very well. I'm in my last sort of fact-checking edit part of the Janet album era, which is the longest part. But it's just like, you know, let no stone 
go unturned. So that's why I've been asking odd little minute questions on Twitter in the last week about just certain things that I just kind of want to make sure that what I say about them, somebody hasn't said something different. And, you know, a lot of uh, books you have to just let go. You can research something to the end of time, but I just don't want, I mean, I'm writing it for the Jam fam. Um, so I just don't want it, it to put out anything there that other Jan fam might know and, um, you know, it not be correct. Cause I know y'all will light up my Twitter. I know my timeline will be fire and not in a good way. And I don't want that. I want us to be having good conversations. We have to think, since it's coming soon, we have to think of some way of like, um, reading it simultaneously or something. I was almost thinking about some kind of way of like, just for early listeners, like maybe like just for podcast listeners and stuff like that, but to do something, whereas maybe if you order the print book out, you know, there's a kind of way to get for free or for cheap or something, the uh, PDF or the ebook, just so you can start reading along immediately while you're waiting for your book to come. So I don't know, is that something y'all interested in? Just let me know. Um, those are the kind of things that I'm thinking about at this point. And that is the benefit of publishing your own shit because you can do shit like that. You can do what the fuck you want. Black entrepreneurship all day. Um, and in addition to all that, I have a website where you can find links for the songs and other stuff that I discuss on the show. It's very easy to remember. It is craigspoplife.com. Okay? So, I, again, I'm just to say welcome back to y'all. Welcome back. Welcome back. Hell, thanks for coming back. Because um, I know it's been a little longer between the shows this week, um, what can I say? Shout out to Depression Awareness Month. Um, you know, it's a real thing. I'm, you know, basically get that self-care, y'all. Get that community care, y'all. Get that spiritual care, y'all. And most important, get your ass to a therapist and get that med medical care. Get them tried and tested pills and take them consistently, okay? Um, I have had a long story. Um, I, no, I've had a long struggle with depression, uh, which I'll share some other time in detail. Um, if it needs to be shared, there's some reason to share it. But um, incidentally, something really kind of interesting happened uh, this week with the, uh, um, you know, these anniversaries, these album anniversaries are wearing me the fuck out every other, every day, every part of the day. There's an anniversary, because people be anniversarizing the singles, then they be anniversarizing the albums, and it's just like, because, because the thing is, throughout the 90s, the fourth quarter was the quarter for the big major releases because people wanted to, um, when you were dealing with physical CDs and stuff, people wanted, you, uh, record companies wanted you to be able to get that little CD so you get it stuffed in your set docking or wherever you stuff your stuff. You know, that CD could be, it could be under the tree, it could be whatever, that religion ceremony, whatever, whatever. You could just get that shit as a gift toward the end of the year. So it, Almost, there is just going to be a zillion, you know, of these anniversaries at the end of the year. So, um, but this one, this was um, just kind of, kind of shook me because it was, um, I guess the, I guess the fourth anniversary of Janet Jackson's Unbreakable, and it hit me because I was going through a really bad period 
when she released Unbreakable, um, yeah, four years ago this week. I, I mean, this was something that I could not even imagine. I've got the... Remember she was bundling up? She's like She was one of the first people to be real bundle, bundle, bundle about packaging her ish. And so I had ordered, like, I guess I ordered a t-shirt or just whatever, a concert ticket or whatever. All I knew is I got me a nice CD from BMG Enterprises several days before the release date. So, of course, first thing you do, you know, snapping a picture, Instagram and everything like that. And, of course, I listened to it once. But I was just going through such a hard period that I was just in bed, couldn't get out of bed, didn't want to do nothing, you know. And so it was like one day I was just like, Craig, you have this Janet album before most people have this shit. Like, you are going to get out of the bed and um, listen to it. So I literally forced myself to get out of bed, take a shower, put some clothes on, and um, I just drove around South Beach, you know, where I live, and just played the album over and over and over again. But the power, you know, that it had for me, it was just the music and what she was saying was just so transformative and really helped me on my journey to healing, you know, at a, at a point where I didn't even necessarily know I was sick. Do you know what I mean? I just knew I felt like I didn't really care what happened to me. Like, I wasn't suicidal, but it was kind of the thing of like, you know, at the same time, if like a high tide came and took me out, I, it's not like I was going through, I would have been out. But it's not like that idea didn't bother me. You know, I just was really at that place of just not feeling one way or another about, you know, being here on this earth. And, um, you know, the Janet album really helped me just try to find a way to, it was, it, it was a way that I could acknowledge my sadness but also try to find a way out of it, to find a reason to want to come out of it. Do you know what I mean? And so it just, I just started playing that album all the time, you know, after that. Like when I needed to get a little swagger, you know, maybe I need to, a new project, had to pitch something or just whatever, I'd blast the title track, you know, and then Damn Baby, because she sings, can't nobody tell you what you can't do. I shut that down automatic, and I guarantee, I'm getting this all wrong. Can't nobody tell you what you can't do. Shut them down automatic, and I guarantee they'll fall in line. I fucking that all up, but you get the, 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 um, you get the principle. The principle is can't nobody tell you what the fuck you can't do, and you just do what the fuck you going to, and then they're going to, the people that doubted you are going to fucking get in line, Janet guarantees, okay? That's the message of it. That's the point. So anyway, and since, so those were the songs that, um, that really used to pump me up. Um, but a lot of times, before I was even ready to deal with the whole swaggericiousness of it all, you know, before I was even able to get the kind to the attitude, it's like I really had to get my hope up. And in those times, I'd play Broken Hearts Heal. Um, I love that song so much. And Dream Maker, which musically is perhaps my favorite um, track on the album, which she proclaims, I'm ready to take the journey to euphoria. Okay, so at least I got that shit right. Damn. Um, 
But the song I played the most, multiple times a day, every day, was After You Fall, which incidentally was one of the first songs that she, Jimmy and Terry did for the album. And it's like, you know those moments in pop culture where you feel like you and your experiences are being uniquely acknowledged? I mean, we know they're not. We know somebody else is making the shit and whatever and all this kind of stuff. But there's just certain moments where you can just listen to something or see something and just feel so validated in your being, in your experiences in ways that you just could have never expected. And after you fall was that for me because it's melancholy but it shows how you can learn from hurtful experiences um incidentally it kind of reminds me of one of my favorite lines from the new young ma album which is excellent y'all should check it out but like i love one line she says when i caught an l i learned a lesson now i count my money count my blessings what when i caught an l I learned a lesson. Now I count my money. I count my blessings. So that's the shit I'm on right now. That's that's what I'll be playing now. But anyway, back then, on, on After You Fall, Janet sings, Your resilience so brilliant. Yeah, you stand strong. But this pain you feel. Never thought a hurt could be so deep. And now, trust for you has new meaning. I'm going to have to run that back. I'm going to have to run that back. Never thought that a hurt could be so deep. And now, trust for you has new meaning. Trust for me has, uh, has had a lot of new, has gone through a lot of remixes over the years, okay? What I try, th- things I try, that has been remixed. We might be into a different genre now. If it started as a, you know, um, a ballad, we might be in full-on, you know, di- a disco song at this point. It's just trust is changing. What you trust in people, what you expect of people, what you give are willing to give people, what you take from people. I mean, and all that has changed, and that song really sums it up so much for me. And it makes me want to insert the Kelly Insecure um, gift. You know what that is? Growth. So that was my life-changing experience with that album, and I thought it was important to speak on it during Depression Awareness Month because we got to get over the shame of speaking about shit like this. Like, what you, what are you going to say about me? Oh, Craig was depressed. Oh, Craig was a couple days late because he was, he was feeling down. I mean, what, you know? And the last thing I'll say about this issue is that I think it's important for people to understand especially for me as a black man of a certain age, um, and probably one that watches too much TV and movies that deal with, you know, psychological things and stuff like that. But um, I felt like when I first sought out professional help, I had an idea that in order for therapy to be helpful to me, I had to find the perfect therapist and like we was going to vibe. I was going to sit back. He's going to fly couch, you know, or she, and I was going to be good. I was about ready to tell all my business. You know what I'm saying? And, um, but the first therapist I went to, I mean, 
she ain't really asked me that many questions. She asked me a couple of questions. She was asking me how I feel. And she was damn near electronically sending the prescriptions to Walgreens. I hadn't even gotten into how my parents separated in 1978 yet. I was I had was ready to, you know, all sorts of childhood stuff. And she said, okay, well, I'll give you this Aline and that Aline and this Pram and this Aline. Okay, you know, and I told myself, I left there. I said, I'm never coming back to this place. That office did, had to drive all the way damn near Fort Lauderdale just for her to not listen to stuff and just give me a bunch of pills. Anyway, but so for the next month, I took the pills and they started working. But I still did not want to go back to her because I still felt like I was just something about the, the um, therapy experience. I was not getting you know what I mean so I went to another therapist and he was really cool he was gay and, and we vibed and we had a little chit chat whatever but the point was that he still prescribed me the same stuff that the lady that I ain't like gave me so my bottom line for what I tell people is that just go to get help from whatever for whatever mental issues you may be mental health issues you may be going through but don't think it's necessarily about that your healing hinges upon deal developing some strong relationship some soprano style shit you know with the doctor I'm sure having a great relationship with your doctor it, I mean I'm sure that can be a great part of the therapy experience and maybe that's a journey people go on to just try to find different therapists and stuff like that but most important is to get diagnosed and get them pills, them pills you got to show up, with, show your license at the pharmacy counter to get, get your pills. And that will be a big step on your journey to wellness, which I am continually to find, um, as I've learned several times, including last week, is a lifetime process, you know, but... And so we move on, and I wish all of you the best along your wellness journeys, um in all aspects so hell maybe even listening to the craig's pop life podcast can become a part of your self-care journey i don't know you never know but anyway i um had that to say and by the way you know i mean just keeping it real talk i did used to do the advice column for vibe vixen which most of y'all probably don't even remember but it was vibe short-lived kind of sister publication so if you do want advice for any people be asking wendy asked for stuff and she'd be you know weird she was going through all sorts of like what was your advice worth you having a husband is having babies and child please ask you what <laughs> but um, if you do, you know, have one, ask me some questions for advice or something, I love it. I love giving advice um, or questions about anything else. Just go to the contact on the Craig's Pop Life website. So anyway, what all else is going on this week? I did check out the first season of RuPaul's Drag Race UK. Now, as I've told y'all many, many times, I support RuPaul. You know, I understand where the criticisms come from, everything. Yes, I get it all. But I also get his history and where he comes from. And that's why I understand this, the situations. And as I've always said, he and Jay-Z are my two main um, business models, business role models. When I look at I like the way they move. I, I be looking and watching their moves. Um, but I usually just watch J Drag Race while I'm doing something else. I mean, I always feel like, I just watch Drag Race basically because, like, 
have a couple friends that watch it, so you, you have to, at a certain age, child, you need something to talk about, or else it's just the same old shit, because you've done known the person for more than half of your life, and, you know, there's not that much new in the day, so you might as well, you need some TV or something to talk about, and then I always feel like I might be flirting with some guy or something, and, you know, might need to know who Jiggly Caliente is, or something, just to get through the conversation, so I, I, I see it as a... You know, I see it as something I do to stay in the conversation. It's not like a chore or something. It's not like it's not entertaining. It's just like, would I, 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 it's not the type of thing that I would watch if it wasn't a social context that encourages me watching it, if that makes any sense. Because I don't really watch any, any reality shows, to be honest with you. But um, so, you know, I signed up for the free trial on the World of Wonder app. And I'm watching the whole, the intro and the people come out, but I'm doing my laundry because when it comes to reality show contestants, you know, this is just the truth about me. I'm always on my Issa shit. I'm always on my rooting for everybody black tip. So until I see a flash of somebody black on the screen, I don't even give the screen my full attention. So no spoilers, but a black Brit contestant did come out. And so, you know, I had to tell my dog to move on over on the couch so I could sit down. And I won't give no spoilers about the episode, only to say that Tom Holland is still my favorite Spider-Man. And I think that most of the Jan fam will agree. Um, but in general, I enjoyed the first episode and, and a, more than I enjoy a lot of the um, first episodes of the last couple of the U.S. seasons, because I think the show is so popular here now that everybody comes on with an agenda. It's almost like they got their joke writers, you know, ma preparing material for them before they come. They come with their one-liners, and, you know, everybody wants to be the bitch or the funny one, or, or they're already going for, you know, all those little awards they give at the end of the season. It's like they already have picked what they're going for and it just starts to seem it just seems increasingly kind of more contrived to me um and they're just working to get the most camera time but the uk queens i felt were more laid back and i felt like i was when they were talking in the makeup room i felt like i was hearing real authentic conversations amongst the queens and not just a whole lot of unnecessary bitchiness and witless repartee so i, I actually found that all very interesting so i will be watching another week i don't know how long the free trial is is the free trial like a month or the free trial like um this one of them seven days free trial whatever it is it's only 3.99 um a month so i pay you know i could i you know get much less than an hour's worth of entertain or four hours because i guess a show a month of a show before hours. i get much less than Four hours of entertainment for three ninety nine all the time. I spend three ninety nine. I mean, gum big man. You, you can't even get a too big one of those thing, uh, things of gum for um, three ninety nine these days. So anyway, I'll probably keep watching. And as it, if anything interesting comes up, I will um, mention it. But you know, one of the things that moved me um, during the episode was the young queen who called himself Generation Rue. And basically meaning that his entire understanding of drag and by extension his sexuality um, really came, it was shaped because of an idea that a black gay man had in 2009 after it looked like his mainstream career was over. 
because that's the situation Rue was back in 2009, you know, at the situation. I mean, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't getting booked for the big gay stuff. And I mean, a lot of this was he pulled back, too. But I'm just saying that nobody would have ever thought that he was at the beginning of the biggest part of his career, as opposed to being at the end of another type of career. And that just goes to show you that, you know, it just proves so many lessons about persevering and not internalizing things people may say about you. People are going to say that you, you're irrelevant. Um, people are going to tell you over the hill. Um, people can tell you that you're just over in general. You know, that's one of my favorite lines um, from Luther Vandross, You Stop Me, You Stop Loving Me, where people tell me, I'm going to probably fuck it up, but something like people tell me that I'm um, not worth the time of day. That I'm over the hill. Let me get that real lyric right. Hold on a second. Because uh, I actually open a whole chapter of the book with the um, this quote. And it's one of those songs that, you know, I don't know what it meant to me when I listened to it when I was, what was like, um, in the 80s when I was a teenager. I don't know what it meant to me, but it means everything to me. Now, um, yeah, well, people have told me I'm not worth the time of day, said I was over the hill. So, you know, again, it's just a message not to internalize that. And Rue obviously wasn't trying to hear all that, and he believed in himself and enough to put the whole thing together, something that has changed the lives of gay people, um, giving them professional opportunities and just shaping and transforming minds around the world. So that's why you'll never hear me criticize RuPaul. Although I do hear other people's criticism, I understand, but that's just why you won't hear me criticize RuPaul. Because I just know RuPaul will never be the political activist that the new kids want him to be. He did he ain't come up that way. I mean, he came up and created himself in an era when black folks weren't really feeling the gays in law, you know, in public, in large, in families and stuff like that. Sure, but just you know, on the um, on the in mainstream tip, and then gays looked down on black folks, even those who were part of their community. Okay, and then nobody was really feeling drag queens. Or um, trans women who were often lumped together in a society in society at a time when the society wasn't really ready to have discussions about the complicated relationship between gender expression and sexual orientation. So he's coming up and making himself a star through all of this. He had to forge his identity and ultimately become a cultural icon in the midst of all that. He had to create himself basically without the help of almost any social or political, gay or straight, black, whatever organization. So it doesn't make sense that he's going to start advocating for groups now. He's a severe, you know, fierce individualist. He feels that he has survived by being the most of himself and he just can't. I just don't think it's a part of his... DNA, a part of his story right now to identify with groups trying to advocate for other people. 
I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying I understand him as that person. I'm the type of person that I do feel like, well, we need to lift, you know, if we, I'm trying to lift us all up in whatever little um, platform I have. And I also feel like as a gay man of a particular age, I don't just stop with, okay, well, what am I, what were my, um, commitments and obligations to the community back in the 1990s i kind i keep up and kind of keep an ear open to what people ear open yeah i guess that's right uh, wait your ears are, oh, don't open or close anyway i just i listen out for the shit i try to watch how young activists be moving and then i try to see um ways that I can do that because I understand that the way that you projected your activism or your support for the community decades ago doesn't necessarily translate the same way in modern day. So that's all I'm saying. Um, And, you know, and and I just hope with this, because, you know, people really got into it with the whole Emmys, Billy Porter, um, RuPaul thing, which I didn't even notice when I was watching the damn thing, but that was, the Emmys are another thing that I just kind of half watch. But just anyway, the venom that kind of came out on um, RuPaul, and I understand we're in this moment, and I understand the reason why there's a desire to have him do more. But I just really hope that we don't let the desire for him to be more overtly political blind us to the fact of how powerful. His, the implicit politics are of what he of who he is and what he's accomplished and that he has a motherfucking franchise show all over the world. I don't want us to lose a sense of that kind of accomplishment just because he can't be everything that we, we might want him to be today. So that's all. But um, the general duration rule line also made me think about a time um, that I've talked a lot about on this podcast. That time in the late 80s and early 90s when there was an explosion of black gay cultural production with Joseph Beam's anthology and The Life and Marlon Riggs's Tongues Untied and my friend Essex Hempel's anthology, one that Joe had started, Brother to Brother. I mean, it felt like the foundation of something that could really build a generation. And I felt very much a part of that. Like, I felt very much like, okay, I got next. You know what I'm saying? It's like, okay, I, I was definitely too young to get anything in um, in in the life. And, you know, I was just kind of um, meeting Essex and stuff around the time when he was finishing up brother to brother but like I definitely felt you know I've got that next anthology that what and I felt I wanted to be a writer and I really saw myself in the mold of um of people like Essex and Joe and just and all the writers that were in brother to brother um and in the life um but you know I I went to school and after I went to college, University of Maryland, um, and when I got out, I mean, I soon found that I soon found myself being kind of lost with so many disappearing mentors and sort of forefathers. I mean, people were sick, people were other people were dying. I mean, other people were dead, or else they were 
literally fighting for their lives. I mean, it wasn't a situation where people were, I mean, there were things like people, readings would be canceled at the last minute. I mean, you really just can't understand how it was to just so quickly watch a whole generation of people that you saw as mentors just disappear. We're not talking about over decades or something like that. We're talking about a matter of like a couple of years, just people just gone. And so I basically just, I, you know, still felt like I wanted to be a writer, but I just kind of disappeared into the cocoon of grad school. You know, I just went to grad school and that's just what I did and everything. And um, when I started becoming a professional writer, when academic writing was, you know, I was just tired of it. Um, I did it by writing about music, by writing about R&B and hip hop music, not writing about issues of black gay men because there were really just not a space for me to do that. So if you read between the lines, because I definitely didn't want to just, I, I, you know, there's the mainstream gay publications, the advocates out, you know, one time a year, a couple, they will always try to have some essay about being black and gay. And if they'll always try to push you to try to make it seem like the black community is more homophobic than the white community. And it's just the same old article written over and over again. I just never had an interest in writing those type of articles. So I just kind of really didn't even get into that mold. So I just started writing about music. And I think that um, if you read between the lines of a lot of my early work on rnbing.com, you'll see that I'm engaging with issues of race and sexuality, in particular in my Luther Vandross biography, but I'm doing it subtly because there was no space for me to do it in a more overt way. And more important, there was no community of black gay writing mentors who could have helped shape my thoughts, bounce around thoughts with, um, and who could have supported me through any kind of backlash. So it was a very much a situation of, um, of being alone. So my second book, this included my second book. So the second book, I felt like, okay, I do want to be overtly gay. I want to have an overtly gay um, book. So it was a memoir of, it is a memoir of a black gay stripper. That's what it is, a memoir of a black gay stripper. But because we're talking 2008, books sold in 2005, came out in 2008, it was just kind of, it was billed as a book about a generic gay stripper because there was no large black gay literary community that could support it. And that's just facts, you know, and um, the it was 2008, the black gay creative community still hadn't recovered from the losses of the 90s in mass. You know, there were people I'm not trying to take away the um, I'm not trying to dismiss the works of individual people, but I'm just talking about having a community that could embrace a work and spread the word of the work and tell other people about the work, the importance of the work or the fun, how funny the work was. That wasn't that. You know, and and this is T right here because it was not never all like a bear was never billed as a black gay book, but you know who recognized it from jump as a black gay book? It was white gays in publishing. Okay, let me make that again clear: the people who did see it as a black book were the white gays in publishing because ne'er a one of them 
tried to bid on the book or expressed interest in the book. The only reason All I Could Bear exists is because of a black woman, okay? A black woman in publishing, an esteemed um, woman in publishing, looked at my story and thought it had worth, thought I had worth as a writer. And she decided to take a chance with me. And that is the only reason why All I Could Bear ever got published. So basically, since the late 90s, I've been waiting for a critical mass of black gay men to publish books in order to create the literary equivalent of what that um, one queen was talking about, that of, of the literary equivalent of a generation rue. And in the last couple of years, I really see it beginning to form. And I'm really excited about what's going on right now. I mean, with Michael Arsenault's book that came out, did it come out last year or the year before last? It didn't even, whenever it came out. Um, he published this hilarious book of autobiographical essays, I Can't Date Jesus, Love, Sex, Family, Race, and Other Reasons I Put My Faith in Beyonce, which is hilarious. If you haven't picked it up, you should definitely pick it up. Um, just a really good book of just, you know, funny, but also each essay, I would say, is funny. It has heart, and it also has... A political point too. So it's like you get, oh, he kind of hits you on all those levels with every essay. So it's really, really very, um, it's a very, it's a very rich read in that, like I said, it does hit you on all those diff- different levels. It's not just, you're not just, because sometimes you get these little funny um, humorous memoir books, you'd be like, ha, 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 and they don't have any meat on them, you know, they don't have anything, but his um, essays have substance. And then coming next week is an entirely different type of book, but it's another memoir. It's um, by Saeed Jones, um, an often devastating but always beautiful memoir called How We Fight for Our Lives. And like I said, it's by Saeed Jones. You may know him from his award-winning poetry collection from 2015, Prelude to Bruise. You may know him from BuzzFeed, where he was the LGBT and culture editor. You may know him as the former co-host of BuzzFeed's morning show, AM to DM. Hell, you might just know him. I don't know everybody you know. But anyway, um, I want to talk about his memoir. I, I'm determined, you know, one thing I was thinking about how to describe it is like, I was always thinking, whatever I do, I'm not going to call this book poetic because the man is a poet. So that's just a simple thing to say. But he really does have a graceful way with words, and he conjures very vivid um, images for the reader. And so what the book is, you know, it's not so much like a... um, Thankfully, it's not an and this and this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. It's like he gives you kind of snapshots from his journey to becoming a black gay man and a writer. And, you know, he allows us to put the pieces together and make the connections and everything. Not in a way that feels like work, but in a way that feels almost like memory. Almost like, you know, just the way in our own lives 
we think about a connection of one memory to the next memory to the next memory to the next memory, and it's not necessarily always clean and clear, and some things are more detailed than other things. That's the kind of experience that he um, evoked for me in the book. So he grows up in Louisville, ten, in Louisville, Texas, a place I have never heard of, where he lives with his financially struggling um, Buddhist mother. But he spends part of the summer, you know how us Negro kids often get sent places for the summer. Of course, with me, all my family's in D.C., so I just got sent from like northeast to northwest, you know. But anyway, he spends part of the summer in Memphis, Tennessee with the evangelical grandmother who brands him as worldly when she discovers his stash of Marky Mark's Calvin Klein underwear ads. So, and he chronicles a lot of black gay rites of passage, um, like the first time being called a homophobic slur. He writes, you never forget your first faggot because the memory in its way makes you. It becomes a spine for the body of anxieties and insecurities that will follow. Before, you were just scrawny. Now you're scrawny because you're a faggot. Before, you were just bookish. Now you're bookish because you're a faggot. And then he discusses looking for books at the uh, books about gay men at the Louisville Library. I know that's something a lot of us can relate to. I definitely did that. Read a lot of 70s gay fiction in my time. Um, but of course, when he's coming of age... Um, He's mostly finding material about men who had died from AIDS. And he writes, When I stood up to put the books back on the shelf, I realized my hands were shaking. I felt like I had made the mistake of asking a fortune teller to look into my future. And now I was being punished for trying to look too far ahead. Walking outside, the blast of hot air was a relief. So he, that was him in high school, so he's had that experience, but you know, he's living on very much uh, the scrutiny of the small town of Louisville. Then he runs through the things that he goes through um, that he experiences once he becomes a college student at Western Kentucky University, writing, I felt the heady rush of another wave of firsts. The first time that the cute boy from class took me out for dinner. My first time waking up next to a man whose name I couldn't remember. My first time feeling embarrassed and thrilled by the hickey on my neck after a night of sloppy kisses. My first time surprising myself with how loudly I moaned when I came. I didn't realize how much I denied myself, or rather, how much I had been denied by growing up in a time when being an out teenager in the suburbs of North Texas seemed impossible. Well, even into high school, or well, well into high school, I had even avoided talking about pop music, even because I was afraid of what would happen if my friend realized how much I loved Whitney, Janet, Mariah, and Brandy. So, who can't relate to that? As longtime listeners or longtime readers, as longtime any associates of me know. Craig's pop life is Monica territory, so yeah, maybe I did feel a, a way for a moment reading that passage, but you know, 
the book otherwise kept me going, so I didn't really, um, you know, I didn't really fixate. But anyway, back to the book. Um, in graduate school at Rutgers, he discovers many of the writers that we talked about earlier and that I've talked about um, multiple times during the podcast. He writes, My notebook was a graveyard of poets. Melvin Dixon, dead, 1992. Essex Hemphill, dead. 1995. Joseph Beam, dead. 1988. Asado Saint, dead. 1994. Reginald Shepard, dead. 2008. The names ran together as I blinked back tears. The names became my names. It's just too easy for a gay black man to drown amid the names of dead black gay men. So it's a very, very powerful passage, and again, kind of, this is happening to him, you know, in the 2000s, and just showing how the loss of these men in the late 80s and the early 90s was still having an effect in shaping the lives of aspiring black gay writers and nothing really had come um, to take, no mass movement had really developed to take its place. And Saeed mentions Reginald Shepard, who um, was a very accomplished poet, who I don't think I've talked about on this show before, but he has an essay called On Not Being White in In the Life. Um, it kind of takes an existential a- approach to sexuality. And he writes, because um, In the Life was very much like, In the Life was asking questions about like how to be black and gay, what does it mean to be black and gay. That's what I say, when we call ourselves black gay men, people can't take that for granted, is that that's just something that existed. That's something that had to be created. And that was created by people like the writers in in the life who were really just grappling with what it meant what it meant to live as black and gay in a way that was in, in, integrated um i think brother to brother takes it a little bit further and deals with um sort of deeper issues of identity and then relationships and everything like that but in the life is very much asking those very um fundamental questions about what it means to be um, black and gay. So um, Shepard writes, I have spoken of myself as a black man. Now let me speak of myself as a gay man. Let me explore the connections between the two selves. How to determine how much is racial and how much is sexual when the two are so entwined that they are in practice identical? I cannot either separate any of the above feelings from my feelings about myself, about myself as a black person, or about myself as a gay man. All three are quite distinct to me. I was black before I was consciously sexual, but I was sexual long before I had the words for sex or race. And when did I become I? So that was from his essay, like I said, on not being white. And it turns out that Shepard is the writer that helps um, Saeed kind of begin to move past the tragic associations that he had 
about the other writers and the, even just about gay men and AIDS in general, since he found, when he was young, he found a um, Polaroid of one of his mother's high school friends who had AIDS. Saeed writes, I return to Reginald Shepard's words. He was gone, but they were still here. I thought about all the poets who had kept me going. One more minute. One more step. I took a breath. I started a draft of a new poem. So all that to say, it's a beautiful, beautiful book, and I hope that it, along with books by Michael Arsenault and others, um, will bring about other books, um, you know, and there are other books that I've bought that I haven't read yet that are part of this, but I just want this to be in the service. I just pray that this is in the service of creating the next, um, the black gay equivalent, the literary equivalent of a generation rue. And I just love to see it coming together. But, 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 there's one thing we have to do to make sure that this happens. We have to buy the brothers' books, okay? The publishing industry, the publishing industry is very risk averse when it comes to books by black people and books by black and books by gay people. So you can only imagine how panicky they get about books by black gay people. You know, they have to move numbers in the game. You know, these books need to move numbers not only to put some coins in the pockets of those writers themselves, but also to allow the publishing industry to take chances on other black gay writers. And there's more to it because there's a real science to this publishing shit. So go ahead and pre-order Saeed's book right now. You probably can do it while you're still listening to me or just as soon as I shut up my black ass up, go do it. Because the thing is, pre-orders count toward first week sales. And the first week is the best chance a book has of hitting the New York Times bestseller list, which can be career changing. So that's why pre-orders are so important. You know, you just go ahead and do it and all of those sales count then for the first week sales of the book, which... Like I said, that is its best chance of ever um, getting on the New York Times bestseller list because it doesn't just represent the sales of one week. It represents the sales of the first week and all of those months of pre-orders, okay? And after that, I have one more thing that I would like you to do, okay? Michael Arsenault has a follow-up book called I Don't Want to Die Poor, Essays. I know a lot of us can relate to that, Um yeah, I Don't Want to Die Poor, Essays, comes out in April. And I know what you're thinking. Like, how many books you asked me to buy? I don't want to die poor either. And um, I know you're also probably thinking, well, if it's just going to count to its first w- weeks, I'll buy the shit in March or something like that. I don't need to buy the shit now. You know, not even in the same damn year or whatever. But... Here's another really, really important thing about pre-orders, okay? Um, Pre-orders help decide, the the publishers are watching the pre-orders to make decisions about how much money they're going to put into the marketing and promotion of the book. 
based upon those early pre-orders. So that becomes very important as well um, because if the book's not marketed and promoted correctly, then it's likely not going to do as well. So all of this stuff is interconnected. That's why it's so important to... That's why it's so important to do these things, but that's why I feel it's so important to educate people. Um, that sounds kind of lofty, like I'm educated, but just to tell people how this shit works, how this publishing industry stuff works. So you really can make your um, dollar mean something when you um, buy these books and you can understand the effect that your dollar is having because of when you're buying the book. So that's all that I just wanted to let y'all know about that. Um, and it really just reminds, you know, the power of our dollars, and if we really do this right, and if we really build a community of writers, because we want all different types of voices. Some people aren't going to like, I know some people don't like my voice. Some people, my voice, as you're listening to it now, some people don't like. And I, you know they're not going to like my writing voice, or maybe they like the writing voice and don't like this voice. The point is, there's a whole spectrum of us, and it would be great to get that um represented. And it reminds me of one of my favorite Essex poems, um, For My Own Protection. And I'll read a bit of it. He writes, I want to start an organization to save my life. If whales, snails, dogs, cats, Chrysler, and Nixon can be saved, then the lives of black men are priceless and can be saved. We should be able to save each other. So just think about that. You know, if you're the, I mean, maybe you don't even read and you don't care, and that's perfectly fine. But if you're the type of person that does like to support um, black gay art and you would like to see a movement started, then just think about that. You know, when you're deciding whether or not to pre-order something or whether or not to buy a book by a black gay man, just think, you know, we should be able to save each other. And that's from somebody, frankly, that because of health problems, really his work could not be saved, you know, and that he was only able to produce a um, small amount of what he wanted to do in life. So, like I said, like he said, um, we should be able to save each other. So on that note, um, there's one more thing that I want to bring you. I know um, some of y'all might be saying, how long are y'all going to be talking about that? There's one more thing that I want to bring you. And this was kind of ever since I was something I wanted to do ever since the beginning of the podcast. Um, one of the reasons why I started the podcast was to give a platform to black gay creatives. And this week we have our first new artist spotlight interview. It's with Deshaun Duran, a brother out of ATL. And he's recently dropped a joint, it, it, like a rap song joint. It kind of has an organized noise outcast player's ball kind of feel, except instead of dealing with hustlers, it deals with a potential hookup that goes down, child, on aisle 16 in the grocery store. So it's called, and let me get this right, <clears throat> I-D-G-A-F-W-A-B-G-T-S-A-M. But after all that, I'm going to have to let him explain it. All right. So here we go with the interview with Duran. With Deshaun Duran. So I want to welcome Deshaun Duran to Craig's Pop Life. You got the hot single out, and I just want you to kind of tell the audience, you know, 
Well, first of all, you need to break the whole title down because you damn near use the whole <laughs> know, alphabet, right? <laughs> the whole alphabet oh in the title. So go ahead and tell the people like what the title is and how the idea for it came about. Right, right, right. Um, well, first of all, I want to thank you for having me on here. Thank sure. You. I appreciate it. Um, it means a lot. Um, as far as the title, oh my gosh, I need to like pull it up to remember all the letters in order. But <laughs> it's um, can we curse on here? Yes, <laughs> curse on, please. Okay. <laughs> so it's uh, I don't give a fuck what a bitch got to say about me. I think you need to say that again for the people for the people in the back. <laughs> for right. the people in the back, say it again. I don't give a fuck what a bitch got to say about me. And that's what I'm talking about. So, like, so what? <laughs> tell me what brought that about. Well, um, I got the beat, and uh, I had the beat for like a year. Okay. And I was just sitting on it, and um, I kept wanting to record with the producer, but he was busy, I was busy, and we never were able to link up. We actually used to work together. And uh, now I still had this beat, and I'm like, I can't get this song out of my head because. I wrote to it a long time ago, too, so I finally just decided to record it on my own, and uh, it just kind of came out amazing. <laughs> funny. But um, as far as the concept of the song, um, you know, concepts of songs, they're so weird with me. Like, I kind of just go off of what kind of comes to me first, mm-hmm. and then I started thinking about what would be fun in the chorus, because I wanted, I wanted to grab some people's attention. I wanted it to be fun, and I kind of wanted to tell a story, and I wanted to relate to the life of a gay male, a gay black male. Mm-hmm. So um, I kind of thought about, you know, DL culture, and then I started thinking about, you know, um, giving the eye to guys and guys giving the eye to you, and it, the song literally just kind of wrote itself. Like, now, it, I have to say, because, like, you know, you you know, you said you were in the ATL, and it's like, why is DL culture so associated with Atlanta? I mean, I used to live in Atlanta for a while, too, and it just seems like more than any other kind of black – I mean, there are tons of other black cities, you know what I mean? There are tons of other right. black gay scenes around the country, but it just seems like when people talk about DL culture, they immediately go to Atlanta. You know, I think when people talk about black gay culture, period, they go to Atlanta. Okay. Um, I think Atlanta is like the the black city, the black gay city. It's it's it is a gay mecca. It is a black gay mecca. That is the truth. And um, I think people just kind of associate anything gay with Atlanta. I actually think Atlanta's DL culture is not, of course, it's DL guys here, but there are a lot of open guys here. There are a lot of guys who are just out and about with their sexuality and walking around and living their life here too. A lot. I think a lot of guys flock here too to be liberated with their sexuality as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I always felt about Atlanta when I lived there is just kind of like, if you are gay anywhere in the South, you know what I mean? Right, exactly. You kind of find your way to Atlanta, whereas, like, if you're gay in, I don't know, on the East Coast, you're going to go to Philly. You know, there are a lot, or New York, or even D.C., my hometown. You know, there are a lot of places to, to go there, but it just seems like from the, and of course, the South being the, you know, home of black culture anyway, you know, it just seems like it's that migration to Atlanta. Right. And I mean, yeah, exactly. So people are already migrating here for 
just to be around more black people, you know, for jobs, for opportunity, of course, now for entertainment, music, Hollywood. And, you know, I think gay just kind of fits right on in there, too. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me a little bit about your musical background and how you even got to um, doing music and, you know, your choice to kind of, like, do a mix of kind of rapping and singing and stuff. Talk to me a little bit about that. Um, well, I oh, my God, I've been doing music for maybe – Oh, yeah, yay. So about 10 years. I, w- I would give it a good 10, a good 10. Um, I started off singing. I always wrote. And, um, you know, when I first came into music, it was kind of switching from CDs to kind of like digital. <laughs> you know, that kind of just tells my age. So it kind of was going to the more streaming and the more um, iTunes and Spotify and stuff like that was getting big. And um, I kind of... Got lost in the shuffle a little bit, but um, I mm-hmm. kept writing, I kept singing, I kept going to the studio, and um, I guess kind of just as I grew as an artist, I I kind of wanted to rap too. Um, to me, rapping it's just it's fun, it's liberating, and it's just something different. And I think just as a creative person and a creative in general, you always want to try new stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, even though rap is not really new to me, it's not. I wouldn't say it's like my number one passion. I would say. Singing is more so, and music in general, really. But I would put singing ahead of rapping. But uh, it just kind of worked. Well, one of my favorite lines from the song is when you talk about the journey from embarrassing to proud to be, you know, sort of the coming out journey. And I'm just wondering, do you feel like your um, journey as an artist or as a creative person, did that parallel your journey as a black gay man? Like, is there a parallel to that? Oh, wow, that's a great question. Um, I would say there there is sort of a parallel just because I think, like, my personal life, it affects my music. Whether I talk about it or not, it still has an effect on my music. And I think, you know, when you become more comfortable with yourself, it kind of seeps into your other segments of your life. But um, I, I feel like I was definitely more comfortable with music than I was before I was comfortable with my sexuality. So I would say music kind of matured first. And um, I think it fully matured when I was able to just talk about what I want to talk about. Well, talk a, little, talk a little bit about your own journey to being, you know, to not giving a fuck what a bitch got to say. <laughs> I know, right? Talk about, you know, how did you go from, you know, obviously – realizing, you know, your sexuality and everything like that to a point where you feel confident enough that you really don't give a fuck what people have to say? Um, you know, I, uh, of course, you know, I started out in the closet and um, I was just at this point in my life where I just kind of wanted to live it. You know, mm. um, it was it was so me in my own head and I felt like me not being myself with my sexuality was affecting every area in my life as far as maturity. And I felt like it was holding me back in a lot of different ways. Cause I, I feel like when you're not comfortable with who you are, you're not able to grow like you're supposed to grow. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I, I felt like it was just, it was just time. I, you know, and I, I haven't been out like a long time. I've been, um, you know, cause you know, you come out in different ages like of you got course. your friends and you got your family yeah. you know but for the most part i am out now but um um it, it's good and I, i'm i'm not even in a different world or a different person but it just feels good knowing that 
I'm living my life, and I don't care what nobody got to say. I'm grown as fuck, and I'm taking it one step at a time, being who I truly am. So what advice do you give? Because you, um, you know, you sort of, in the song, you're sort of dealing with kind of closeted guys or guys kind of right. giving you that look, but then they're not really right. down to follow through, and you're kind of getting mixed signals and stuff like that. I mean, um, is that like a big part of your experience? You come across a lot of guys like that, and then if um, you do, like, have you helped anybody else like along their coming out journey? You know what? To be completely honest, <laughs> that bold guy in the song is not really me. It's like almost like a Shawnee Fierce. So you know how Beyonce has Sasha Fierce, right? 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 That's kind of like <laughs> a fiercer side of me. And I'm not not to say that I won't ever become that person because I remember Beyonce saying that you know. I am Sasha Pierce now, like we've merged the two people. But um, exactly, exactly. So um, I've so never it's kind of in, to... in a way, it's like you put you you're putting out a vision of how kind of like almost like a musical version of creative visualization. Like you're putting out there how you really want to be in a way. Right. Exactly. So if I like bold me, maybe drunk me, <laughs> would like because I am a lot bolder when I get drunk. So well, who you know, if I'm. Right, exactly. So if I'm in that situation, it could go down like that. But um, sober me is kind of like, okay, I know this guy's eyeing me. Like, I would just be in my head for like seven hours. That, <laughs> you know, and that, what would be going? Me. Tell us what would be going through your head sober. I, I would like, is he looking at me? I think he is looking at me. Should I say something? Should I not say something? Let me text one of my friends and I'm asking him if I, I should say something. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I should just follow him. Is he following me? I don't know. I don't know. Like it would be that, like over and over and over. <laughs> and then, but you said like if you're drunk, you just be like, right, drunk me. But you know what? I'm never drunk at like the grocery store because that's where well, the yeah, song well, takes place. <laughs> so, <laughs> drunk me probably wouldn't would be a whole another situation. I would probably be at the club. So yeah, I would be yeah, grabbing and pulling. Because yeah. <laughs> that'd be a whole that'd be a whole other song if you were drunk consistently exactly. at the grocery store, right? Exactly. So tell me a little bit about, were there any artists, you've mentioned Beyonce, but like, were there any artists that specifically kind of helped you in both, you know, understanding your sexuality or getting comfortable with your sexuality and also with your um, creativity? You know, like a lot of people will say Beyonce or something like that, and it's certainly acceptable to say that. I'm not saying, you right, know, but okay. whoever, um, any artist that kind of that you felt like me. helped you with your identity. Um... Ooh, with with my sexuality, I can't really point to one artist. You know, I feel like sexuality for me was more of a personal thing. So I didn't really look at an artist like, oh, yeah, that song helped me to, you know, fly like a bird or something like that. I didn't right. really have that moment <laughs> with music. <laughs> but when it comes to music, um, as far as who's inspiring me musically, um, oh, my gosh, it's a ton of people. Um, I love TLC. Um, I love I love Outkast. I'm in Georgia, so of course I love TLC and Outkast. Right. I love Mariah Carey. I love Michael Jackson. I love I love Janet Jackson. Um, I love my boy bands. I love Boyz II Men. I grew up on Boyz II Men. Um, One Twelve, Jagged Edge, um, Jodeci. Uh, so basically, like I, just I'm a like child of the '90s. '90s hip hop and R&B, basically. Exactly. Exactly. So, are you from Atlanta, or were you? Did you also migrate to Atlanta, or? I'm not great to hear. I'm actually from Savannah, Georgia. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, a lot yeah, of people. Originally, from, I met a lot of people from Savannah and um, <laughs> in Atlanta. That's definitely a path people take. Most definitely, it's a short trip. You know, family is right around the corner, but it's it's far enough so you can kind of like go away and live your life. Right. And um, you know, Atlanta is just that place you go again for liberation. So it kind of just made sense. So tell, um, you know, to kind of wrap up, tell me, like, what is your goal for your music? What can we expect? What do you want people to, um, you know, how do you want people to relate to your music? Tell me a little bit about, like, what your um, plans are with this whole musical vision. Um, well, short term, I'm definitely trying to make a video for this song, like, within the next month. Okay. Um, I'll send it to you, too, as soon as I make it. But um, long term, um, I would love to just be able to tour and make great money off of my music. Like, I just want to tour and make uh, YouTube videos and make music all day, every day, throughout the day. That's my ultimate goal. Just, and that's, like, that's what I want. And, you know, like I just said, that was the last question. Now I have a question. But <laughs> And then, I mean... <laughs> so, you know, what do you feel like you're, if you had to sum up what you feel like your music offers to other black gay men, like, what would you say? Do you know what I mean? Like, um, what are you trying to um, say I, to? I would say that I'm just another voice, you know? Um, the, one of the, another thing that I thought about when I was writing a song, I knew a lot of black gay men would be able to relate to what I'm saying. Like, mm -hmm. I know there's somebody who's going to hear this song, like, oh, my God, like, he is it for me, you know, and I, I really, I take that seriously because I know what it's like to not really have someone. That's why I can't really get into who would help me come out as an artist or a celebrity because I kind of know what it's like to not have someone who's like you in a position to kind of be an idol. So mm -hmm. I kind of look at myself as someone who's, you know, making it easy just by being myself, being a public figure giving people a soundtrack to their lives, you know, without having to change words around and change pronouns around and do this and do that. But I think when you hear it and you hear me saying the things that you are going through, you know, whenever you hear a song from someone who's like you and they're saying what you would say, I think it just means more. Well, that's fantastic. And that's a fantastic way to end because, I mean, the reason why I wanted to talk to you is because I do feel like, you know, as black gay men, we are still – so early in so having ourselves early. be represented in pop oh culture and having different voices. You know what I mean? It's like right. sometimes I feel almost like we've been skipped over. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, like wait a I minute. Think we're like the forgotten demographic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does kind of feel like that when you watch, the, when you see the, the kind of um, things out there in gay culture and the gay representation. And it's not like they're not black gay characters. But oftentimes I find, like, when you see black gay characters on TV and in movies and stuff like that, they aren't really a part of black gay culture. Do you know what I mean? Right. And that's not necessarily oh, yeah. saying there's anything wrong with those people, but it's just saying that there's a whole thing called black gay culture, and there's a whole group of people that identify strongly with that, and you just don't see that represented. But yet, you know, they want to take how we talk and they want to take how we act and use that. But like when it comes to just representing us and the richness of our culture, you don't really see that. So that's, and that's why I think that, um, you know, you're an important voice out there trying to um, represent us. So I really appreciate that. And, you know, that's exactly why um, I wanted to talk to you. Oh, well, I, I thank you so much for having me. And I totally agree. Um, the more voices we have, the better, um, you know, 
Let's change it up a little bit. Like let let some authenticity into the game. I'll say that. So I want to thank Deron. Oh, I keep getting this man's name wrong. I, I'm so sorry. I want to thank Deshaun very much for um, being our inaugural interview. And, of course, you can find his song on the Craig's Pop Life website. Yes, it is working this week. I apologize for last week. You know, it's a one-man show up in this mug. So sometimes things fall through the cracks or checks don't fall in the mail. <laughs> Credit cards don't fall in the, um, in the, um, you know, through the computer, right, or whatever. Or the automatic, you know, um, the automatic renewal you thought was automatic, you suddenly find out wasn't automatic. Those things happen when you're trying to run a one-person show, but it's going to be all right. And so that's it for me this week. If you've enjoyed the artists I've discussed, um, then go to the Craig's Pop Life um, website and check them out. Um, you know, do a quick for the bills do again. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> and if you enjoyed the podcast in general, if you like your boy, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes, and share it with a friend. But until next time, y'all, y'all know how we do. Um, be cool, be kind, be creative, and in the words of my fave, be your damn self. <laughs> All right, y'all. Love y'all. See y'all next week. Bye.